Well, good to see everybody. Good to see you guys. Can I have you turning your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 4? All right. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. Genesis is the book of beginnings. Well, this is the first specific mention of sex in the Bible. Uh, the term knew or to know is a polite way of saying they had sexual relations, a term that then is used throughout the Bible to you know, denote that. We even read in the New Testament that Joseph did not know Mary, his wife, until after she brought forth Jesus. So it's a polite way of stating what we know is going on. And uh, Adam knew Eve's wife. She conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. The name Cain basically means I've got him or here he is. And it seems from the name Eve chose uh, to call her firstborn son by that she believed him to be the one God had promised back in Genesis 3.15. Eve thought she was holding in her arms the promised deliverer, the one who would crush the serpent's head and restore them to paradise as they had been driven out of paradise because of sin. And uh, that's why she says, she calls him, here he is. <laughs> All right, the Lord, this is the promised one. All right, God told me he was going to give me a son, and that son would crush the serpent's head and no doubt restore us to paradise. Unfortunately, she wasn't holding the Messiah, she was holding a murderer. Verse 2, then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Now between verses 2 and 3, over a hundred years has passed. So by this time, many people now have multiplied on the face of the earth. But the story focuses on this family, okay, Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel. And here we, we find the two brothers are trying to each approach God. One, Abel, God accepts, and the other, Cain, he rejects. Now, there are many who feel sorry for Cain when they read this, okay? I mean, he's only trying to worship the Lord, isn't he? He's sincere, I mean, what's, what's God doing here? It seems like God is capriciously just saying, well, Abel, I'll pick you. You can come near me. Cain, out of here. And it seems unfair in many people's minds that here a guy just wants to come and worship the Lord and the Lord rejects his offering. Well, what's obvious, even though it isn't stated, is that God had specified, God had specified to each of them, and in fact to everyone living at that time, the proper way to approach him, the issue was not that God was being unfair to Cain. I mean, he obviously had made himself clear about the proper way to approach him. So why then did he reject Cain's offering? Now, so a lot of people at this point say, well, that's a no-brainer, okay? It's because Abel brought a blood sacrifice, see? The shedding of blood necessary for atonement, whereas Cain brought the fruit of the land. He was a farmer, a tiller of the field. And so Cain brought the works of his hands, Abel brought a blood sacrifice. That's why Abel's offering was accepted. Cain's was rejected. 
And I see where you're going with that, but let me just say this, all right? First of all, we're not told in the passage that these offerings were sin offerings. But let's assume for a moment they were, all right? In the law of Moses, God had said that if a person was too poor to bring a lamb as a sin offering or even two turtle doves, they could bring a grain offering. Now, it was no doubt rare. God allowed it because he didn't want even the poorest person cut out of fellowship from him. And of course, sin had to be dealt with if a person was to have fellowship with God. But God made it clear even from the very beginning, right here we see it, but also in Leviticus 17.11, God said very clearly, I have given you the blood upon the altar to make atonement for the soul. It is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And also in Hebrews 11, verse 4, we read how Abel's offering is held up as an example of genuine faith, whereas Cain's offering was not. In other words, the real issue here, guys, I don't think, was the offering itself. I think the real issue was the heart of each man in bringing the offering. Now, once again, I believe the Holy Spirit is making a distinction here between do-it-yourself religion and God-directed righteousness. What do I mean? Well, we saw it earlier in the attempt by Adam and Eve as they, you know, uh, sinned against God, and suddenly they felt shame, they felt guilt, and they sought to cover their guilt and shame through the works of their hands by sewing fig leaves together. God rejected their religion, quote-unquote, and he killed a couple of animals, no doubt, in front of them, took skins to cover them, because God was trying to teach them and all of us right up front that it is through the shedding of blood. Even though God made an exception in the Old Covenant, very, very poor people could bring a meal offering. That was really wasn't the idea, though. I mean, the idea was that God was saying that sin brings death. And if the person doesn't die, then a substitute has to. God graciously allowed a substitute to die in place of the guilty sinner. And the blood of that animal covered. That's what the word atonement means. A yam kapura, a covering. The blood of animals in the Old Covenant only covered sin couldn't take away sin. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can take away. Remember what John the Baptist said as he introduced Jesus to his disciples, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Doesn't just cover it, removes it completely. But here we see the Holy Spirit making a distinction between, again, religion and righteousness or the way of righteousness, which is God's way, all right? Uh, we read how that the Jews didn't really learn this lesson even though right here in their Hebrew Scriptures, the first book in their Bible, the book of Genesis, God is reinforcing that over and over, first through Adam and Eve trying to cover their shame with fig leaves, God kills an animal, sheds blood. Now Cain and Abel, okay? And I'm not saying the offering they brought God had nothing to do with God rejecting or accepting. But I do think that uh, Abel did bring a blood sacrifice. Cain brought uh, the works of the field, although he probably could have afforded a blood sacrifice, but chose to just do it his way and bring to God what he wanted. The Jews didn't seem to learn this lesson because we read in Romans, in fact, why don't you turn to Romans 10, a very familiar passage that really gets at the heart of this. In verse 1, we read, Brethren, this Paul is writing, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. In other words, not according to what God prescribed. All right? 
For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And here we see it right here. We see religion versus the way God is prescribed. And guys, this applies to everyone who thinks they can approach God and be accepted by Him because they're a good person, whatever that means. They go to church, they light the candles, they pray the rosary, they help the poor, etc. So a lot of people who think that that's how they get to heaven, that's a very common way of thinking today in our society. But again, the words of Paul to Titus are very important, where Paul said to Titus in chapter 3, verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by His mercy He has saved us through the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. We read in the book of Proverbs that no one can say, can cleanse themselves from their sin. No one can say, I am clean, because we can't do it. It has to be God doing it through a blood sacrifice, okay? Well, verse 4 Again, the Lord respected Abel in his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry. The Hebrew is burning with anger. He is furious with God. And his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, Cain, if you do what I've told you, I'll accept you. And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. The first murder in the Bible. At this point, we really need to turn to 1 John 3. 1 John 3, starting at verse 10. Now, John is making a differentiation between the children of God, the children of the devil. But many times that distinction is embodied in religion, okay? Uh, many religious people are very antagonistic towards those who really belong to God. And John basically points that out. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Now, let me just stop there, okay? Uh, we can read that and become very nervous. What do you mean? Practice righteousness. What if I blow it? Does that mean I'm not a Christian? No, it does, not necessarily. I mean, if you really want to live for God, and it's a consuming passion to obey God, and you blow it, it just means you're weak. John did say earlier, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But John is laying down a general pattern here. This is not an exclusively uh, a um, exhaustive thing. It's a general pattern. Children of God generally live righteously. Oh, they blow it once in a while and still can sin. Whereas the children of the devil generally live unrighteously. Although, doesn't mean they can't do a few good things here and there. Verse 11, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Notice that. John calls religious works evil if a person is looking to them to be righteous. 
That that's, that's, takes us back. We think of something, uh, works that are wicked, we think of murder, adultery, rape, incest, all kinds of things. We don't often categorize religious deeds that people try to offer God to earn them salvation. We don't look at those necessarily as wicked. God does. Because they are an affront to His holy word. They're, they're an affront to His way of true righteousness. And so it's very important that we understand that. But these verses in Genesis 4 and what John says in 1 John 3 are basically saying the same thing. That starting with Cain killing Abel, those who feel that their good works should earn them a place in heaven have always persecuted and often killed over the centuries those who believe they are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's the simple message. I mean, uh, the reformers who spearheaded the Reformation, they were killed because of their belief salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And because they dared to trust the Scriptures only. Sola Scriptura was one of the cries of the Reformation. Don't give us all your man-made rules. Don't tell us the Bible plus doing all these religious works. We just need God's Word. That's all we need. And they were killed by the hundreds and even the thousands for that belief. But listen, what's being taught here is that phony, self-righteous Christians, I'll put it that way, have martyred more of God's true saints than any other group in history. Abel approached God through faith and obedience to what God had prescribed, whereas Cain, <laughs> he came on his terms and thought, God, you ought to be blessed I'm even here at all. Interesting attitude, right? You know, in Jude, verse 11, he mentions Cain in the context of some other things. He says, woe to them. Speaking of apostates, what's an apostate? Somebody who gives the appearance of being a true believer, but really is not. Okay? Woe to them, speaking of apostates, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now the way of Cain, as we've already pointed out, is the way of self-styled, do-it-yourself religion, as opposed to those who approach God through faith, obeying what he said was the proper way to approach him, as Abel did. You know, God has prescribed that there is only one way to approach him. In the New Covenant, we know very clearly that God has said many times in the New Testament, there's only one way to approach him, and that is through his son, Jesus Christ. All other ways are worthless and unacceptable, no matter how sincere a person might be when they try to approach God in whatever way they try to do it. The Bible says clearly there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end thereof that leads to death, eternal death, separation from God forever. That's religion. That's the broad way, as Jesus pointed out. It's tolerant, it's broad, doesn't make any demands in your life. It, it just accepts everybody. Of course, the broad way, Jesus said, leads to destruction. There's a narrow way. It's not an easy road. That way is Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Guys, let me say it again. There are only two religions in the world. The religion of human achievement and the religion of divine accomplishment. Every religion and religious system in the world apart from Christianity falls under the category of human achievement. What we do or what people do for God to earn his favor and ultimately to earn heaven. Only Christianity, which is not a religion, you understand, it's a relationship, 
but only Christianity falls into the category of divine accomplishment. In other words, what God has done for us to save us. Religion says do. Christianity says done. As Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. Aren't you glad he didn't say it's almost finished? Hey, I did my part. That's up to you guys to do your part. You know, I hope you make it. I'm rooting for you. Good Lord. Thank you, Jesus. He paid the price. He did all the work, right? Look, religion comes from man. Comes from man. It is an expression of his pride. He's going to show God he's good enough to, work, to earn heaven. It is man-centered and works-oriented. Christianity comes from God. And is Christ-centered and grace-oriented. In other words, salvation is a free gift. Grace means a gift. You can't earn a gift. It's freely given. You just say, thank you, Lord, and receive it by faith. That's the difference. Biblical faith, first and foremost, believes what God has said and comes to him the way he has prescribed. Now, those who try to come to God through their own work, which is religion, like Cain did, have always hated and persecuted those like Abel who come to God through a heart of faith and obedience. In fact, Jesus pointed this out when he was just really blasting the scribes and Pharisees for their religiosity over the centuries. Remember what he said in Matthew 23, starting in verse 34? He said, therefore, indeed, I send you prophets. Isn't that interesting? He's saying, I have sent you over the centuries prophets. Okay, he's claiming to be God, of course. Prophets, wise men, and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. You may not realize this, but Abel was the first martyr of the Old Testament scriptures, the Jewish Tanakh, their holy scriptures. And Zechariah was the last prophet to be killed to close their scriptures. So from A to Z, you might say, all right? Uh, religion has persecuted and killed more of God's true people than any other movement. Now, Hebrews verse 11, excuse me, Hebrews 11 verse 4 says that by faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. Interesting. First of all, it tells us that a life lived for God never really dies, especially in our day and age. Aren't we blessed to have recordings and books and access to these things on the Internet and so on of godly men and women who lived centuries ago whose lives still speak to us from the grave about what it means to walk with God, often in times of great difficulty and peril? Many were martyred. And we look to them now as examples, as, as mentors in a sense, to teach us how we are to live for God. If they can do it, why can't I do it by God's grace is the idea. But Abel's faith coupled with his obedience to what God said was the proper way to come to God still speaks to us today that there's a right way to approach God and a wrong way. It really comes against the thinking today that as long as you're sincere, it doesn't matter what road you take. It doesn't matter how you approach God. See, God looks at the heart and sees if you're sincere, and if you're sincere, it doesn't matter. Well, apparently it does. Because God has said, look, 
Sincerity does not equal righteousness. Faith equals righteousness and obedience. And the idea is that, look, you can be sincere and you'll be sincerely wrong. So God is very picky that we obey what he has said. And that's the problem today. People hear what God has said and they basically say, I don't care for that. Or I don't think, I think God's being too narrow. I think God should let me in because I'm a sincere Buddhist or, or this or that or whatever. And you have people in the church that are basically broadening the way. I've heard evangelicals who are saying today that, look, the road to God is much broader than we think. And in the blood of Jesus Christ is going to save the sincere Muslim, the sincere Buddhist, the sincere whatever. I mean, even if they've never heard of the name of Christ, I'm not making this up, even if they've never heard of the name of Christ, if they're sincere to the faith that they have, well, God will apply the blood of Jesus to their account, and they're going to get into heaven too someday. Well, what's with the Great Commission then? Why are we going into all the world? Why are missionaries taking their lives into their hands? Why are they being martyred, have been martyred over the centuries? If that was it, why don't we just go out and tell people, just be sincere? doesn't matter what you believe, just, just be sincere. Because God is going to take the blood of Christ and apply it to your life if you're just sincere. I don't see that in my Bible. It's the apostasy of the last days, guys. Of course, it sounds very with it and tolerant and kind to say God accepts all people. We Christians who are evangelicals, we sound very narrow and, and, and bigoted often. Because we say, no, no, it's only Jesus. You know, oh, so your way is the only way. Well, it's not my way. It's the way Jesus laid out. I'm just walking it. All right? I didn't invent it. He's the one who said, I'm the only way. You got a problem with it? Take it up with him. I don't know. I'll tell you. But, but something else, Abel's blood continues to speak to us, testifying from the grave. And that is, that, the, that is to the reality that those who are righteous through their faith will always be hated and persecuted by those who seek to approach God through the works of their hands. Jesus said something very telling in John 16, verse 2. He told his disciples there is a coming a day when those who kill you will think they're doing God's work, are doing God a service. Now, the short-term fulfillment was the Jews, how they persecuted the Christian church when it began. And, uh, you know, of course, you read the book of Acts, how Paul was persecuted, how Peter and the others were persecuted, right? So the Jewish people, the leadership primarily, uh, originally were the ones that fulfilled that prophecy, but it didn't end with them. Because after that, the Roman Catholic Church stepped in and began to kill by the thousands and thousands true believers because they wouldn't swear undying loyalty to the Pope or they, they wouldn't say that salvation is only through the Catholic Church. Now, today, the biggest threat to evangelical Christians is Islam. And we see Islam all over the world persecuting Christians, killing them, whole villages of believers. There have always been those who think that their zeal for God in any way they define that God. Well, those who claim just to believe in Christ for salvation, just simply that, have always been persecuted and even killed by those who think that the works of their hands earns them God's favor. And so that's what is really being said here. But in verse 7, the Lord said to Cain something very important to consider. He said, you know, why are you so upset, Cain? You know, why is your countenance fallen? All right. If you do well, you know, won't you be accepted? And if you do not do well, listen, 
Sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now, if you've ever studied this verse, as I have done, you will find there's a lot of people that don't agree what it means. And, and rather than get into a big, lengthy thing about all the... Let me just say this. I, I just take a simple view of this. The imagery in the Hebrew is that of, a, of, of sin is like a lion crouching by the door. What door? The door of your heart, the door of your house. What, it's something that implies it's close to you. Sin is never far from us. Why? Because, really, it connects with our fallen nature, which is in us. So the idea is that I, I see this. The Lord is saying, look, Cain... If you do what's right, you'll be accepted. But if not, guess what? Sin lies at the door. It wants to pounce on you. It wants to control you. You're not to let it. You're to exercise control over the flesh. The flesh wants us to do what it wants, our fallen nature. Live contrary to God. God says, no, I want you to live in obedience to me, right? Look. God's command to Cain and to all of us is don't give in to the temptation to sin, but exercise control over the flesh and obey God. Now, that's easier said than done, right? And let me just say this to you. I think it's impossible if you don't have the Holy Spirit inside of you. So if you're not a believer, uh, I don't see how any unbeliever is going. I mean, I'm not saying that unbelievers can't overcome areas of sinful bondage. They, I'm not saying they can't quit smoking, they can't quit drinking or taking drugs or, or stop you know, sleeping around. They can have maybe victory in that one area, and maybe it's only short-lived. Sometimes it is. But here's the thing. If we want victory across the board over the flesh, the only way that's going to be possible is through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Remember what Paul said? One of the fruits of the Holy Spirit was self-control. So we have to be connected to God, is the idea. We have to be in fellowship with God. Because as we walk in fellowship, we have the strength to, you know, resist the flesh, walk in the Spirit. Now, verse 8. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. The language sounds as if this was premeditated, that Cain purposely got Abel away from the family out in the field, because he had planned to kill him. As I said, this was the first murder in the Bible. One commentator said Cain had no doubt killed many animals uh, in sacrificing to God. He knew how to kill something that was alive, just that he never had killed another human being. And so he exercises that ability, and he kills his brother. Now, verse 9 says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Smart aleck. Here God isn't looking for information. I mean, God knew what went on. He wasn't looking for information when he asked Cain where Abel, his brother, was. He was simply trying to draw out a confession from Cain. Remember what he did with Adam and Eve? You know, Adam, where are you? Well, I'm hiding. Why are you hiding? Well, because I, I'm naked. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree? I told you not to eat of. I think God didn't know. He was trying to draw a confession out of Adam, just like God's trying to draw one out of Cain. And by the way, are we our brothers and sisters keepers? Cain didn't think so. Are we really accountable to one another? I mean, is your welfare my concern? Is any of my business how you live your life? I think it is. That's what being a family is all about. 
That's what being a body, the body of Christ, is all about. You know, some people, they join the church and get very upset when someone tries to hold them accountable to walk with the Lord. And I've had people come to me, you know. Who do they think they are? Well, I think they're Christians. I think they think they're Christians who love you. Look, this is, when you signed up, okay, to be a Christian, you got a whole family, okay? And you can pick your friends, but now you're stuck with us. Now, look, I understand some Christians go overboard. Some Christians try to control other Christians. You have to know how far to come into somebody's life before you stop and say, Lord, now it's up to you. I've tried to hold them accountable. And that goes on a lot in the body of Christ. Some Christians are overbearing. They think it's their responsibility to control others. No, it's just our responsibility to keep them accountable. Just gentle persuasion, okay? Loving interaction with them. But we are accountable to each other. We are brothers and sisters keepers. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that in the body of Christ, there are people that have kept me accountable over the years. There are people that have come to me because God has spoken to them and said, look, God spoke to me. And, you know, this is what he said, and he wants you to understand this and that. And, and I had to acknowledge that they were right. I had to make some changes. Sometimes I had to repent for some things. I'm thankful that God loves all of us enough where he won't let us go our own way. We are our brothers and sisters keepers. Unless you're an unbeliever like Cain, then it's all about you and not about anybody else. Verse 10, And God said to him, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength or its fruit to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. Now earlier, God had cursed the ground because of Adam's sin and told Adam, now you're going to have to break your back when you farm for the earth to bring forth its fruit. Here, God curses Cain himself. See, Adam wasn't cursed. The ground was. But now God actually curses Cain and says to him, no matter how hard you work, the ground will no longer bring forth any fruit for you. And that he would be reduced to a fugitive, which means a criminal on the run, and a vagabond, a person moving about aimlessly without a home. It was all part of the curse God laid on Cain. So obviously Cain couldn't continue as a farmer. All he could do was wander around from place to place, trying to you know, eke out a living as best he could, doing whatever he could to survive. But the curse God placed upon him went beyond that. All his relationships with his family were broken. He was a pariah from this moment on. He became a hated man, an outcast among his own people for committing the first murder on the face of the earth, killing his own brother. Verse 13, And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Notice what he says here. He doesn't say, My sin is greater than I can bear. He says, My punishment is greater than I can bear. His words only contain remorse over the consequences his sin has brought into his life, but I don't hear any demonstration at all of repentance coming from him. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10? Paul said, for godly, there's two kinds of sorrow in the world. He says, one is 
Godly sorrow produces repentance, leads to salvation, not to be regretted. That's the good stuff. But there's also the sorrow of the world, which he said produces death. Now, how can you tell if a person is demonstrating genuine repentance or just worldly regret? Well, let me just say this. Are they making any changes? Now listen, there are Christians who are in bondage to something. They really want to be free of it. And they cry out to God and ask for grace to be free. And they are free for a little while, then they fall. And they get up and say, God, please forgive me. I'm sorry, Lord, I don't want to live this way anymore. Lord, give me grace to be free of this. And they walk a while for, for a while and are, have victory, but then they fall again. They're trying to change. They want to change. And believe me when I tell you, God's grace will eventually bring the change. That's different from a person who does whatever they do in rebellion against God and exercise a little remorse because, oh, I got caught. Now I'm going to have to deal with these consequences. But I'm really not sorry for the sin, okay? I might be sorry for what my sin has brought into my life. I don't like these consequences, But I'm not really sorry for the sin. That's really where Cain, I believe, was coming from. Now, it's interesting how our society has kind of embraced this and almost uh, elevated it to a place of honor in some respects. What do I mean? Well, let me just, and I've read this before, but let me read it again because the woman that this has been written about, Catherine Power, she was a 60s weather underground gal who back then, you know, they were trying to overthrow the government, you know, and revolution and so on. Um, they robbed a bank, and she shot a police officer, a guard, security guard, killed him. He had nine children. Well, she took off. For the next 14 years, she was underground. She was underground. She was running from the law. I bring all this up because they, she not long ago, she was given a professorship. If you want to be a professor in the universities today, just be a real nasty character. But, but this, this whole thing is speaking about her life. It says, Catherine Power was a fugitive for more than 23 years. In 1970, during the heyday of the student radicalism, she participated in a Boston bank robbery in which a city policeman, the father of nine children, was shot in the back and killed. Pursued by federal, federal authorities for murder, Miss, uh, Miss Power went into hiding. For 14 years, she was one of the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives. Finally, in, the late, in late 1993, she surrendered to the authorities. In a statement she read to the press, Catherine Power characterized her actions in the bank robbery as, and I quote, naive and unthinking. What motivated her to surrender? She said, I know that I must answer this accusation from the past in order to live with full authenticity in the present. Power's husband explained further, she did not return out of guilt. She wanted her life back. She wants to be whole. Well, in a perceptive piece about Catherine Power's surrender, commentator Charles Krauthammer wrote, her surrender for the sake of full authenticity, quote-unquote, was a form of therapy, he said. Indeed, the final therapeutic step towards regaining her sense of self, end quote. Now, Pastor John MacArthur in his book, The Vanishing Conscience, picks up on this, and he says, and I quote, that kind of thinking has, in other words, there really is no guilt, no guilt is just you're a, kind of a victim yourself. That kind of thinking has all but driven words like sin, repentance, contrition, atonement, restitution, and redemption 
out of public discourse. If no one is supposed to feel guilty, how could anyone be a sinner? Modern culture has the answer. People are victims. Victims are not responsible for what they do. They are casualties of what happens to them. So every human failing must be described in terms of how the perpetrator has been victimized. We are all supposed to be sensitive and compassionate enough to see that the very behaviors we used to label sin are actually evidence of victimization. Victimism has gained so much influence that as far as society is concerned, there is practically no such thing as sin anymore. Anyone can escape responsibility for his or her wrongdoing simply by, by claiming the status of a victim. It has radically changed the way our society looks at human behavior, end quote. And it's everywhere. It's everywhere. So worldly regret or remorse is self-focused and feelings-oriented, but it's not true repentance. You say, well, what does true repentance consist of? Just three things quickly. First of all, it involves awareness and understanding of our sin or wrongdoing. When John said, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, the word confess there in the Greek is a word that means to say the same thing. When we sin, the first step in restoration is confession. In other words, I'm agreeing with God. Lord, you said this was wrong. I did it. I was wrong. Okay? No excuses. No justifications. I'm confessing to you. I'm saying the same thing you are, Lord. I did it. I know you said not to do it. It's sin. I did it. I have sinned. Forgive me. That's the first step. Second, it involves our emotions. We feel bad about what we have done. Now look, if a person is really repentant, they are going to feel bad, okay? Here's the thing. If a person only feels bad but does nothing to change what they've done, well, then it often is just worldly regret. But genuine godly repentance means I acknowledge what I did was wrong. I truly feel bad. I feel guilty for it because I know I'm, I'm wrong. I'm guilty. And thirdly, it involves the appropriate actions to make for a change of lifestyle. In other words, it means you change. You turn around. If you're going in one direction that's wrong, you turn around and start moving in the opposite direction. You're going towards sin. I'm wrong. This is, this is not what God wants. I confess it. I turn around and start moving towards God. If I've hurt somebody and I can make any kind of restitution, I do it. Because that's what it means to be truly repentant. So Cain didn't repent for his sin. His words only reflected a self-focused remorse over the punishment he now has to endure. And, listen, and the fear for his own safety. He's afraid for himself now. You say, well, why? Well, Cain was afraid that as he wandered from place to place, any of his relatives, which was basically everybody, okay, might want to avenge Abel's murder by killing him. Verse 13, And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. Implying that, I think what Cain is saying here is that God had established a place where people could go to worship him. Remember it says that Cain and Abel brought their sacrifices to the Lord, implying there was a place that God had established. See, even back then, God had established parameters. He had, he had given instructions, right? It wasn't self-style worship, do it yourself, whatever you think. God had prescribed things. He made it very clear to everybody, look, here's where I am to be worshipped. Here's how you approach me. 
you want to be accepted. Of course, today, anywhere we want to worship is okay because Jesus lives in our heart, which makes, you know, God's with us. We are the temple of the living God. We can worship anywhere, right? But we still have to worship in spirit and in truth. Spirit, born of the spirit, saved. God doesn't accept worship from unbelievers. And truth, we have to do it God's way, which is, again, come through Jesus. Now, he says, Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Interesting. Cain should have been executed by God for killing his brother. Not only did God not kill him, graciously so, but actually protected him for the rest of his life from any vigilante justice. You say, what was this mark? I don't know. And nobody knows. Uh, as I was doing some studying today, um, it was obviously visible because people could see it. Okay, So God put some kind of mark on Cain, which basically said, don't come near this guy. Anybody who hurts him, I'm going to take it out seven times what I did to him on you. But one author said, some have supposed it was a tattoo or others a special hairstyle. I thought that was interesting. <laughs> hope the guy kept his hair his whole life, right? One of the ancient rabbis even argued that the sign, you know, the mark, was a dog that accompanied Cain on his wanderings. The dog assured Cain of God protection and frightened away attackers. The author says, in my mind, I see a giant bull mastiff with a spiked collar, end quote. I don't know. Look, I don't think it's important we understand what the mark was. Only that it became a symbol of God's amazing grace towards sinners, those who should be put to death for their sins, but who are allowed to live by God's grace. Now, you know, grace is an awesome thing if it's used right. It can be your worst nightmare if it's not used right. What do I mean? Well, God gives people grace, time to repent. And sometimes people take most of their lives to repent. Right? I mean, I've heard people that on their deathbed, you know, uh, one person I, and I've heard a story of, they were over 100 years old and finally came to Jesus before they died. Wow. In their case, grace worked in their favor. It gave them enough time to repent. But the longer you live and don't repent, even though God's grace is giving you time, you're storing up wrath. All the sins you're committing are storing up wrath. In other words, punishment in hell. So if you live to be 100 and die without Christ, God's grace has done you no favors. Because really, <laughs> that's a long time to be sinning. And you're going to need to pay for every one of those. So your degree of punishment in hell is going to be much worse. So the idea is that, look, this is the age of, day of grace. If you're an unbeliever, or if there's any unbelievers, I don't know, or listening someday to my voice. Um, look, this is the day of salvation. Don't, don't abuse God's grace. Now, God kept Cain alive for the rest of his life. I mean, God protected him. I don't know how long he lived, but nobody was allowed to kill him, take him out early. So he had a lot of grace going for him. 
The question is, did he use it wisely and ever repent of his sin? Apparently not. Because if we just read in 1 John 3, John calls him a child of the devil. Every place Cain's name is mentioned in the New Testament, it's always in a negative sense, in terms of judgment and sin and evil. So I believe that Cain did not use God's grace properly. And you know, the Bible tells us that the day of grace comes to an end in every unbeliever's life. Some sooner than others, I, I understand that. The idea is that God's grace, the day of grace, for each individual is not going to go on forever. What did God say? My spirit will not always strive with man. God's spirit is striving with unbelievers, drawing them to Jesus. If they keep refusing, 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 at one point, the spirit withdraws himself. Their fate is sealed. They've passed the spiritual point of no return. There's no longer any hope for them to be saved. It's a serious thing to think about. Verse 16. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, on the east of Eden. And Cain, here we go, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. All right, the age-old question, where did Cain get his wife? <laughs> well, obviously, he married a sister or a cousin or a second cousin, which God originally allowed because there was no other way to populate the earth in the beginning except to marry a near relative, which was okay in the beginning because, in part, it was not genetically dangerous to do so. Over the centuries, uh, our genes have become more and more polluted, defective, so that now if you were to marry somebody near you, like a sister or a first cousin, genetically, if you try to have kids, you, that, that's why they've outlawed uh, marriages of near relatives. Because genetically, it's not very good. And you'll no doubt produce deformed children and so on. But in the early days of man's creation, God allowed it. And then later on under Moses, he said, now that's it. There's no more reason for it. And he forbid it. But where did Cain get his wife? Well, the problem comes from the fact that when people read the story, they see four people mentioned. Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel. Of course, Cain took out Abel, so there's three left, right? So where did Cain get his wife? It's only three people on the earth. No, no. Those are the only people the story is focusing on. We read in Genesis 5, verse 4, that by this time, Adam had and Eve had many sons and daughters. Again, over 100 years has passed, and so many people have multiplied on the earth. In fact, some scholars who study this stuff tell us that there could have been upwards of 200,000 people on the earth at this time that Cain left his neighborhood and went and founded a city and married a gal. Now, she was a cousin or something, obviously, but there were other people on the earth. It wasn't just the three of them, even though the story kind of makes it sound that way because it's only the, the ones that are being focused on. But we do know that, again, chapter 5 is going to teach us that uh, Adam and Eve had many sons and daughters by this time. So there's a... A lot of people that were uh, available for him to choose from, all right? Which we'll pick it up there next time, God willing. And chapter 5 is a big hunk of it's just genealogy. So, you know, we'll no doubt get through uh, the rest of 4, 5, and get into 6 next time. And 6, chapter 6 at the beginning is very, very interesting. Very controversial. 
I find it fascinating. You might, you know, boring, I don't know, but I think it's fascinating. And as we see references to what I believe went on in Genesis 6, beginning part, uh, that the New Testament writers talk of, I think it's very interesting uh, to consider. So we'll study that next time. Father, we thank you so much that you have placed in your word so much for us to learn from, Lord. We just praise you and thank you and ask for the grace, Lord, to live our lives according to all that you have said. Lord, we don't want to obey you a little bit or even 90%. We want to obey you in every area of our life. And we thank you, Lord, that you've allowed us to approach you. We're so thankful there is a way. It doesn't have to be a hundred ways. We're just so thankful that there's one way, and it's through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, we can have bold access into your presence. We never have to make an appointment. We can come boldly, you tell us. You don't have to, we don't have to be timid. Jesus did all the work. We're perfect in your eyes now as we are in him. And Lord, it's a privilege that we often don't use. So give us grace to understand the incredible privilege we have to be able to come into the presence of the God of the universe anytime we want because relationship has its privileges. And we're children of the king. Therefore, we can have access to our Father anytime we want. Thank you, Lord. Father, continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.